Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Barbara Chase Rabu at the Pulitzer in St. Louis. My guest is Stephanie Weisberg, the curator of Barbara Chase Rabu Monumentale, The Bronzes, the artist's first retrospective and the largest exhibition of her work to date. In addition to sculptures, such as from Chase Rabu's Malcolm X, Zanzibar, and La Musica series, the exhibition includes nearly two dozen works on paper and a selection of Chase Rabu's poetry. Chase Rabu Monumentale is on view through February 5th, 2023. A catalog will be available in January. On the second segment, Rosamond Purcell. But first, Stephanie Weisberg, after the break. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Rebu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Rebu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Stephanie Weisberg, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. I think Barbara Chase Rabu is best known for her Malcolm X series of sculptures, works she began making in 1969. So instead of going chronologically, I thought maybe we, we would start there. She made the first two of these sculptures before she gave the series its name, Malcolm X. What had she been exploring formally at the end of the 1960s and what led her to the title? So as you mentioned, the Malcolm X series, which to date includes 20 sculptures, which Barbara Chase Rue began producing in 1969 and has produced over many decades, is a series of monumental bronze and fiber works, largely silk and wool. And it was really a breakthrough series for her in that it was the first moment when she crystallized her mature signature style, which is comprised of a few main components. So as you mentioned, Tyler, the first two Malcolms are a bit of a transition moment for her prior to 
chaser boo arriving at this amalgamation of metal and textile. And the first two works are floor works and they're produced with lost wax casting, which is an ancient bronze casting technique that Chaser Boo began engaging with in 1957 while she was at the American Academy in Rome. And the forms are quite pleated and have a lot of folds and undercuts and a sense of deep relief. And there are a few different points of inspiration that Chaser Boo personally cites or that one could trace by in looking at her history. First of all, as I mentioned, traveled to the American Academy in Rome and was deeply inspired by Baroque art and architecture there. So looking at someone like Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa and thinking about the way in which a sculptor like Bernini wanted to transform the material of marble into this incredibly plastic light and experience is something that deeply inspired Chaser Boo. She was also interested in sculptors like Medardo Rosso, who harnessed the light by using wax and also the lost wax casting technique. But then the other really important influence that happened during these early years was a trip that she took to Egypt in 1957 and traveled there essentially alone as a young woman, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do during the time period, she encountered for the first time Egyptian culture and art firsthand. There's this wonderful quote that she says, essentially after encountering Egyptian art, Greek and Roman art looked like pastry to her. So this sense of solidity, of elegance, of power that's present in ancient Egyptian art was incredibly important to her. And I think you can see that influence in the transition between the first two Malcolms that she produced and the later works in the series. So essentially what she does is scale up the works by about five times and then she scales up the work by about five times, making the bronzes much more monumental, but also creating forms that essentially functioned as monuments. They, she referred to them as seals, just like ancient Egyptian memorials. And I think in many ways, they have a lot of the formal similarities. They're very frontally oriented. They relate to their architectural surround, and they are just over sort of person scale. And then the other important moment to acknowledge during this time period is a trip that Kesarbu took to Algiers for the Pan-African Cultural Festival in 1969. And so from letters that she wrote to her mother, which are actually just published now in memoir titled I Always Knew, that's published by Princeton, we can trace back, I would argue, the point of origin for this introduction of the silk and wool to one's forms. 
So she traveled to Algiers in this moment. It was just a few years after Malcolm X was assassinated. And by the way, when day that Malcolm X was assassinated, she wrote to her mother about how devastated she was about that he was killed and, and the loss of this very important political and social figure. And then, of course, in this Pan-African Cultural Festival, you know, this anti-colonial, anti-imperialist sensibility was quite present there. And Malcolm X's memory was quite present. And she also reflects on her own politicization in that moment, how the Algerians, especially during this moment of independence, sort of taught her and the Americans how to how to engage politics. So she wrote to her mother while she was there that she had arrived at this underlying theme for a new series of sculptures. And then when she got back, she had already constructed these monumental bronze elements, but she added the silk and wool. And many people have traced the silk and wool to West and Central African masculine where textile is used as a way to disguise the body of the performer. And you know, I think it's sort of limiting to to describe her work within the context of a single reference, especially Chaser Boo herself hasn't identified like a particular a particular cultural masking practice that she's interested in, though I definitely think that that presence is there. But you know, one might also think about the fact that Chaser Boo had traveled to China during this period and is deeply in Inspired by Chinese silk and textile. But the way she speaks about it really is that the textile and the bronze exist as binaries, uh, which she is complicating through her sculpture. So she's complicating the notions of hard and soft, light and heavy, by suspending bronze on top of fiber. And I, I often also think about it in terms of the history of monuments. You know, bronze is a material that has been used to memorialize within three the accomplishments of white men and associated with permanence and greatness, while as fiber in Western art has been associated with domesticity and craft and women's work. And in these works, the fiber does the work of supporting the bronze. Let, let, let me just interrupt really quickly. You mean literally, it's the fiber that makes up the bottom portion of the sculptures and the bronze on top. So the bronze appears to be resting atop. Yeah, thank you for that. Exactly. The bronze appears to be levitating atop silk and wool. And I think there was a, a very practical reason for this as well, which is that the silk and wool fibers disguised the armature of her bronze works, which had been a problem for her in her practice, how to disguise this armature. And so I think this was a huge moment in her career and a very significant epiphany for her about what happens when she brings together these two disparate materials to create a unified composition with, as you said, the, te the textile at the base and the bronze above. So it represents, I think, her very international set of influences, her engagement with politics and history, and her engagements with abstraction form. Yeah, they're, they are a, a fascinating and headline body of work. I think five of them are, are in the exhibition. As, as you've worked on these sculptures, do you think there is something within that textile and bronze tension 
formal tension that specifically the chaste reboot specifically applied to or thought of in the context of Malcolm? Or is that tension less about him specifically and more about broader directions in her practice? I think that tension is less about Malcolm X specifically. I think the connection would probably be from this an African kind of moment and her, in, in a sense, her encounter with the political and her positioning as a Black woman living in, in Paris who had traveled to Algiers at this early post-colonial moment after the death of Malcolm X and thought about Malcolm X's teachings and looked around at West and Central African art and cultural traditions that were present in that context and wove together those ideas. That being said, the fiber and bronze is something that she continues with throughout the rest of her career. And it continues into not only, I mean, she, she uses these materials in works that memorialize specific people from global history, but also in works that think about making visible the sensorial experience of music, for instance. So I think one could certainly draw connections between those two materials and that early moment in which Malcolm X was on her mind. But I think for her, she kept evolving with her materials and kept their meaning dynamic. The other tension that is primary in the work, both both the Malcolm works and, and many other works, is the tension between the contrast between the weight of material bronze often, but also, for example, in the case of Time Womb, Jacqueline from 1970, aluminum, the, the contrast between the weight of metal and light, the way light bounces off of is reflected by Chase Rebu's surfaces. That's, and, and that's another thing that really stays in the work for, for decades, really. Is that related to her interest in fabric and the lightness of, in, of fabric, or is it a whole different line of address and interest? You know, I think it's related, but I, I almost feel like I would say that she's interested in, she's interested in materiality and she's interested in light and, and by light, I don't mean lightness, but you know, light, light and shadow. And I can think of ways that she's used textile to experiment with light as well. For instance, you know, silk and wool absorb light differently or depending on whether you're looking at a black bronze with black wool, which completely sort of sucks light in versus a gold sculpture. And her work is largely monochromatic. So whatever color the bronze is and she her the main patinas that she uses are gold, black and red and in some rare occasions, other colors. But she you know, she does play throughout the entire sculpture with whether it be textile or bronze with light. And and this interest in light, as I mentioned before, I think in part goes back to influences like Rosso and Bernini. But it's also interesting to see, you know, in, in lesser known but very significant bodies of work like her Cleopatra series, the way in which she was thinking about light and luminosity on the surface of her bronzes in a completely different way. For instance, the Cleopatras are made from thousands of small bronze 
plaques that have been woven together with wire. And the inspiration for this series of work, aside from the historical figure of Cleopatra, were these jade suits made from the Han dynasty that Chase Rabu's husband at the time, Mark Rabu, encountered on a trip to China and sent, sent her photographs of. And there's this iridescent quality in the jade that she was quite interested in. And she harnessed that by adding materials to the casting process at the last minute to produce this sort of unpredictable finish to the bronze. And these works have an incredible relationship to light where they really completely reflect light back into the space. And at the Pulitzer, we have them installed in an all black room. And so it appears as though the, the works are Spotlit. There's no other lighting. And so it really appears as though, and, and in many ways, literally, the main source of the light in the room is actually coming from the work because they're so reflective. And it was important to Chase Rabu that they be shown on a black background because of this contrast between the lightness and the, the stark. I was going to bring up the Cleopatras later, but I'm glad you brought them up in, in, in this context. She makes works addressing... Cleopatra over a quarter century. What about Cleopatra, either as a figure or as an historical subject, because Lord knows there are lots of Cleopatras in European and American art. What about Cleopatra interested her and then, because she's making them for so long, held her interest? I think if I were to put it in one or two words, what interested her about Cleopatra is power. There's actually a quote by her says the genesis of my interest in Cleopatra is based on my fascination with power in all capitals as wielded by women throughout the ages. The concept of women ruling the earth and shaping society in immutable ways continues to be a revolutionary idea, even though it has been a fact for eons. And so I think she sees Cleopatra as an icon and a model for women in modern world. I think in many ways, uh, Cleopatra was a very personal figure for her, a figure of personal inspiration. But it, it really has to do with uncovering these untold stories about, and Cleopatra's certainly one of the most well-known female figures that she engages with. But a lot of her career, both her artwork and her writing, because as you know, she is also an acclaimed novelist and poet, has to do with the work of bringing to light or celebrating the legacies of women and their influence in the world. I think also the one other thing about Cleopatra, of course, is her connection to ancient Egypt. And for Chase Rabu and for many, many, the history of ancient Egypt is one that is incredibly important to a sense of African identity and one that has been usurped and told as a narrative of the Western world. And so for that reason, I think Cleopatra is further intrigued as a historical figure. One of the constants across Chase Rabu's oeuvre is her interest in these points of geographical connection, Egypt and Europe, as you just mentioned. Zanzibar, Chase Rabu made a series of Zanzibar titled works just 
after she started the Malcolm series, Zanzibar and a transatlantic history between Africa and the United States. Is she seeking out these geographical intersections or is that maybe just a product of her interest in weaving multiple histories and multiple ideas in, into individual works, which is also a constant in, in the oeuvre? I have a few thoughts off the top of my head about that. Number one is that she, in many ways, is such a global thinker. And I think she looked at moments of the exchange of power. And I think those moments often at points of intersection in different histories, different cultures, different nations, different power structures. And so I think she's placing her finger on the map at these sites and asking us to dig on our own to understand more how those stories have been told and what we're missing. To embrace complications rather than simple us versus them binaries. Yes. And then I would say the other thing that comes to mind is just that there's also a way in which the reading of her work is inflected by the trends of current art historical analysis and the way that intersectionality and intersecting histories has become such a focus. Not to say that it wasn't a point of focus for Chase Rue at all. I think it is. And I think she's an early artist who's doing that work. It's just that we might have a particular eye for it or speak about it in particular terms at the moment that that might be slightly divergent how she would have framed her in 1969. You mentioned uh, Barbara Chase Rabu's literary career. You know, she, she's written poems, epic poems, of course, her 1980 novel, Sally Hemings. Are there places in her work or in the show perhaps where you think of or see Chase Rabu's literary interests as intersecting with her sculptural or drawing practice? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So many places. While we don't have poetry on the walls in our space, we do have it, you know, we have our interpretive materials are on the Bloomberg app, and a number of her poems appear there, because there are a number of poems that have the same title and relate directly to series of works that she produced in, in drawing or sculpture. I will say that she speaks of these two disciplines as very separate, and she does not toggle easily between those two. I think it's a very almost an on and off switch for her, which is actually an interesting way to look at the production of her work, understanding, you know, there, there are periods of time during the 80s, for instance, as you mentioned, her novels, when she's really focusing on, on writing much more than producing visual art. But to answer the question, I mean, circling back, for instance, to Zanzibar, which you mentioned is a series of sculptures that came very shortly after the Malcolm X and the Zanzibar works are in some instances even more monumental and complex in terms of the bronze work than the Malcolms. And they're titled after the East African archipelago that was the center of the Indian Ocean slave trade. And there is an epic poem 
titled Why Did We Leave Zanzibar? That relates directly to the, the history that she's engaging with in the artwork. We have been talking about the sculptures almost entirely, but the show also includes drawings and, and some major drawing series. One of those series of drawings is a group that Chase Rabu made beginning in about 1966, known as, <laughs> my French, the Lalit drawings? Lili? Lili? And you write about them in your catalog essay as a crucial pivot for Chase Rabu. What prompted them? And why are they an important moment in, in her practice? You know, it's the Lily drawings are actually another instance in which she has a poem of the same title as an artwork. So as you mentioned, they began in 1966. It was surrealists, for instance, looking at people like Alberto Giacometti or Germain Richier with these elongated kind of spindly forms and a lot of her early sculpture is a little bit more figurative and related to those points of inspiration. And the, the Lily series starts out in the same way. It represents two figures lying on a bed. And the bed is made to be almost entirely abstracted. It's represented by just a, a plane of white and the two figures are seen from overhead. And if you look closely, you might actually note that the female figure appears to be pregnant in the image, and, and which makes sense because from personal perspective, this work was drawn shortly after Chase Rubu herself was, was pregnant with her son. But the, the drawing in the beginning seems to relate to her interest in, in figuration, but also eroticism, which is a theme that spans much of her practice and career. And then as you progress through the series, the two figures become increasingly abstracted and the bed turns into a, just a geometric form of negative space. And these pleated formations appear of the sheets sort of turn into these, you know, pleated undulating formations, which if you look at them alongside her bronze works that she created during the same time, just, just a couple years later, though she was working with similar forms in aluminum at the time, they're, they're very similar. They have a clear interest in light and shadow in the sort of complex folding of a straight linear form into something rumpled and pleated, which once again kind of reminds one of looking at Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa, for instance, I would say represented an important leap in her practice where she moved from figurative work. She had been previously creating work from cast bones that she had found at a, at taxidermy shops in Paris to what would become her signature style of bronze work throughout the rest of her career. You mentioned the um, synchronicity of the Lily drawings and sculptural works. This is present in your show in the gallery with the drawings is Chase Rabu's 1966 sculpture Nostradamus. I think we'll have an install shot on manpodcast.com. Zipping past some of the writing years, seeing as we're mostly talking about art here, 
In May of 1991, construction of a federal building in Lower Manhattan led to the discovery, and then, of course, the excavation of a long, I don't know if long lost is the phrase or long forgotten is a better phrase, pre-Revolutionary War era African cemetery. Chase Rabu was fascinated by this and ended up engaging with the discovery in her work in a pretty substantial way. So two questions about that. One, what about that, he says, waving his arm wildly, interested her? And how did she address it in a major sculpture? And how have you addressed it in the show? I think what interested her in that fight, like much of her work, is it the huge historical significance of the lives that were completely forgotten and literally built over of Africans living in New York during the late 1700s. She also has engaged with the history of slavery in a number of works. While we talked about Zanzibar earlier, where she engaged with the history of the Indian Ocean trade, she's also engaged with the trade just two years prior to the construction of the federal building that led to the discovery of this burial ground, she published her novel Echo of Lions, which is the story of the 1839 revolt that was staged by Mende people from Sierra Leone who had been transported as slaves on the Amistad and the resulting Supreme Court case which declared them free. And this this story, of course, ultimately became the script for Steven Spielberg's famous film. But Chase Rabu also, two years later, conceived of a Middle Passage monument to honor victims of the African diaspora and caused by slavery. So this is a longstanding interest of hers. I think what's particularly interesting is the way that she conceived of memorializing the site, while I think many people might turn to something abstract in terms of representing this history. Chase Rabu decided to focus in on a single figure and tell her story. So what she produced is an 18-foot-tall bronze sculpture uh, titled Africa Rising, and it depicts Sarah Bartman, who was a woman from South Africa who was brought to Paris and put on display as a curiosity. And she is probably more colloquially well-known as the Hottentot Venus and became sort of a symbol for the exoticism of African people among Anglo and European cultures. And Chase Rabu produces this monumental sculpture depicting Bartman atop the prow of a ship, thinking about the journey that she would have taken from Africa to get to Europe, but also memorializing the forced and violent journey that so many millions of people were taken on at the hands of European and American slaveholders. So there, yeah, there's a lot of historical references that she blends together in this sculpture, including her interest in, you know, the Nike of Samothrace, dating back to the Hellenistic period, to Artoldi's original proposed model for the 
sculpture that would eventually become the Statue of Liberty, which was originally going to be called Egypt Carrying the Light to Asia, and was imagined to be installed in the Suez Canal. So there's many centuries of historical and art historical influences that she integrates into the formal aspects of Bartman's depiction. And I think this very global and historically informed interpretation is very much in keeping with her practice, though this work feels like such a departure from the work that we've been talking about thus far, because it is much more explicit and figurative than a lot of her other works in which the figure she's referencing is only known in a titular way. Your discussion of Africa Rising, you know, reminds me that really ever since the mid to late 1960s, Chase Rabu is interested in, in memorialization. You represent that in the show through sculptural works, but also through drawings. Why do you think the process and ideation of memorialization held her interest, holds her interest across so many decades? You know, this is one of those truths that's so fundamental for her. I feel like I gave you a shorter and direct answer as, you know, something that she told me is I'm a teacher of history and a teacher of art history. And while her work is, as you said, she's dealt with memorialization throughout her career, much of her work is quite abstract, but she sees herself as someone who brings to light important moments and figures throughout history and who uses her artwork as a potential for for learning and for new knowledge. So I think that's part of it. I also think she's just someone who has a deep and kind of unending curiosity for the world around her, whether she engages it through her drawings, through her sculpture, through poetry, or through literature. You know, the, her, her novels are researched as a true historian would, she, with her breakthrough Sally Hemings novel, engaged archival material to understand more fully Sally Hemings' relationship with Thomas Jefferson. And I think she's she has the mind of a, a researcher. I want to go back to Chase Rabu's playing with textile and using textile for just a moment. Some of the forms her textiles take remind me of Sheila Hicks's work. Sheila Hicks and Chase Rabu are probably the two most prominent American expats and feminists working in France who, who chose to make their careers in, in France. Do you know if they know each other and if Chase Rabu was, is interested in Hicks's work? Yes, absolutely. So they do know each other. They were in the same class at the MFA program at Yale. I wondered about that. <laughs> yep. They shared a longstanding friendship. There's actually a narrative about Barbara's work that essentially tends towards vast simplification and frames the story as though Chase Rabu learned to handle textiles through Sheila Hicks, which I think has oversimplified things quite a bit. But from what I understand, Sheila Hicks did show Chase Rabu at one point how to tie a particular kind of knot. And so there was a creative exchange between the two, certainly a personal exchange. But I think 
Chase Raboo's interest in fiber, I mean, while Sheila Hicks engages so much in the material history south of the United States, Chase Raboo largely went in different directions for her inspiration. Sheila Hicks to South America, Chase Raboo to Africa. Mm -hmm. And Central America for Sheila Hicks. In the last 15 years or so, Chase Raboo has built out iterations from earlier series such as Malcolm X. What are some of the directions she has explored in so doing? Why is why has she kind of reopened those chapters or kept those chapters open might be a better phrase? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think she I think she's someone who works very organically in terms of how and when she returns to a series. Sometimes it seems that she's motivated, for instance, her foundry might come to her and say, you know, there's a different patina available, a different color, bronze. But sometimes it's it comes, I think, really from something very internal in terms of her motivation to revisit series. What I can say is that she does have very long-standing series. The Malcolms have been around for 20 years, another major series, the La Musica series, where she thinks about the representation of musical instruments and the bodies of that play them and, and the experience of listening to music. She began in the 1990s and has continued into the present. And she has a way of sort of endlessly iterating and complicating her forms, whether it be through new means of braiding and tying or through you know, she has, while I've spoken a lot about the way that she creates undercuts and pleats in her bronzes, what I haven't spoken about are the ways that she carves into them or creates moments where the bronze is perforated and she might pull the fiber through the hole and drape the fiber into the front of the work or moments in which she's used different color fiber, for instance, a white fiber against a black bronze on Malcolm X 13 which is quite unusual for her versus her completely monochromatic compositions or something which is spoken about very infrequently, which is that she sometimes casts ropes and then integrates the, the bronze casting of the rope into her work. So I think I imagine for her, it's just pure creative experimentation and something quite improvisational. Stephanie Weisberg, thanks very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Tyler. The Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia presents Infinity on the Horizon, an exhibition that brings attention to the power art has to influence our understanding of the environment. Open through December 31st, it features modern and contemporary objects in the museum's permanent collection including art by Georgia O'Keeffe, Elaine de Kooning, and Richard Mayhew. Foregrounding female, black, indigenous, and queer perspectives, it underscores how abstraction as an artistic strategy can expand our understanding of the landscapes around us. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Infinity on the Horizon, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. This podcast is sponsored by Getty. From mausoleums in Timbuktu, to Greco-Roman ruins in Syria, intentional destruction of cultural heritage has a long history. Now available to download, Getty's free book, Cultural Heritage and Mass Atrocities, provides strategies and policy agendas for the protection of cultural heritage during times of war or genocide. 
Edited by James Cuno, President Emeritus of the Getty Museum, and Thomas G. Weiss, the publication features perspectives from 38 experts from the heritage, social science, humanitarian, legal, and military communities. Sections on vulnerable populations, as well as the role of international law and the military, offer critical insights about research, policy, and actionable steps to protect both people and cultural heritage. Learn more and access the free ebook at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Rosamond Purcell joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of Rosamond Purcell, Nature Stands Aside. It's at the Addison Gallery of American Art at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. The retrospective exhibition examines how Purcell has collaborated with paleontologists, anthropologists, historians, curators, and more in exploration of the shifting lines between art and science. Boy, photography has been interested in that since just about the beginning. The exhibition was curated by Gordon Wilkins and is on view through December 31st. The museum has published an excellent catalog in collaboration with Rizzoli Electa. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for between $45 and $65. Rosamond Purcell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm delighted to be here. I want to start by talking about your early work and how you began working with Polaroids and kind of kept them around for a long time. Polaroid is a very specific medium, lots of possibilities within it. It's a very material form of photography. And Polaroids live in the world as objects in a way that other photographs don't. They change. They have to be handled and treated in a certain way. You know, all all of which is interesting to me because the material you would work with in so much of your career was also alive and also keeps changing. So what about Polaroid's material and the Polaroid process interested you and held your interest? Well, when I began, I wasn't a photographer at all, but I, I met Dennis Purcell and he immediately gave me a Polaroid camera. And I wasn't a photographer, but he wanted to see what I would do with the camera. And I took photograph. It didn't work. Took another, didn't work. And I, I couldn't figure out how to make it look like what I was looking at. And he, he taught me how to cut them, cut the pictures up and make, save the little pieces that did work compositionally and being able to work from print to print and being able to mm. see what you get as soon as 20 or 30 seconds after you've taken the photograph. And when I began, it was a Polaroid pack camera, which means that you hold it up to your eye, but it isn't through the lens. There's a, a difference between looking through the viewfinder and looking through the light parallax. You have to look through the lens and then figure out exactly what the lens is going to see. And if you just look through the through the viewfinder, take a picture, it isn't going to be from the angle at which you want it to, to end up. So you have to kind of move around. And that taught, taught me immediately that if I wanted to to get something in the camera, to frame something in the camera that I had to sort of adjust for that angle that was off. Because what I would do is to see something and just take, put it up to my eye, take a picture, it didn't work. Taking a Polaroid photograph, it wasn't like an SX-70. You had to pull it, you had to pull the print and the negative, which held the pod that was full of chemicals, that would squirt across the receiving sheet and give you a picture. You had to pull this through rollers that came out of the camera. You waited 
oh, I don't know, 30 seconds, it's up to a minute if it was color, you peeled it apart and you had something that you threw away that was essentially trash, and then you had a print. Was that you look at the print you've just done and you make adjustments and you take another one. So you don't have to go into the dark room, you don't have to wait until you feel like developing the film or looking at contact sheets and then making a decision about what you want to do. You are not blind. You are in the presence of the subject. You can make changes from composition or whatever you want or change the subject altogether while you're there. So the actual event of photographing well, you know, was very efficient. So it was really, really a great way for a beginning photographer to learn what photography was all about. And I didn't have any intention of being a photographer. It was just that my new friend, Dennis, had given me a camera to take on, on a trip, and I wanted to see how it worked because I was lucky enough to do up to, oh, 10 and maybe about 10 good photographs after a while, which I submitted to Polaroid when they were just beginning to collect photographs from artistic photographers. And there were a number of others at the same time as me that this was going on. And it was um, Paul Capenegro and very good photographers who were using the materials and sent 10 pictures in. They bought several of them for $30 a piece. And then they gave me some film. And the film fueled the photography. It took me two years or three years before I actually went into a dark room after starting with Polaroid. So therefore, I didn't know how to print in a dark room. Mm. And I had to learn how. In the mid to late 1970s, you became interested in the relationship between humans and the rest of the animal world. And you used that Polaroid film to begin to explore those relationships. I'm thinking of pictures such as Archimedes, which is wild and intense and funny. What does Archimedes show? And what about the relationship that you manifested in that picture caught and captured and held your attention? The way, the way it was done is by taking a an ambrotype, 19th century glass plate that didn't have either oh, out of its case so that it was translucent and whatever surface you then put it on and then photographed, you could see what was underneath come through and you could make a composite, composite image. And what happened with Archimedes is this combination of ev the thought of evolution and of, of children and, and different animal sort of qualities that humans have, and then putting these two, the plate and a child's sticker from Victorian times that showed an owl on it underneath the plate. Um. And so it is, it is a series of children's stickers from, I think, Pollock's Toy Museum or something. I think that was it from London. Just sort of colorful, playful things. And when they were combined with the glass, they merged and made a strange new creature. And I'd noticed this early on in, in photography because I'm very interested in reflections. And, you know, you reflect, you choose something in a window on the opposite side of the street for some reason is visible in it <laughs> because yeah. it's another layer. So I was, from the, from the beginning, I was interested in sort of the layers that could be compressed and turned, would turn out onto one sheet, one photograph of the background and the foreground. And this was definitely 
the combination of the glass plates and the stickers made composite animals. The exact example you gave is something that interested Imogen Cunningham, too. She, of course, took photographs of reflections in shopfront windows as if they were mirrors. The sticker you, you mentioned kind of presages what will become a major interest of your career, and that is nature and how we experience it. Nature has been an interest, a primary focus, really, of American art since the 1830s or 40s, except in the long 19th century American tradition, artists would, you know, paint nature outdoors. And you're most, you've mostly been interested, not entirely, but mostly interested in nature indoors, how nature lives after it dies or, 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 or is no longer present. And you've particularly explored that relationship at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. How did you end up there and how did you end up interested in its collections? Well, I born and grew up in Cambridge and was taken as a child to the museum and I didn't like it a bit because <laughs> I didn't like it, but I didn't say so because it was, you know, a local cultural site. And I then took a photograph of the termite eaten book and I loved the islands of text and the and the holes and the caverns that were that resulted in not having the text. My father, who was a historian and liked things to be thorough and clear, looked at the look at the book and he read across the holes and he said, This is about the young men in in Russia who, after the re revolution, decided that they really had to get to the to the city and leave the farm. So this is about people leaving the country, going to the city, so on and on. And he read so much in mm. something that I could barely make out. And I just liked the fact that there was missing information. So it's, it sort of depends how you look at, look at things. And I think that being attracted to what wasn't there was of great interest to me. So you went on to make a number of book pictures, including Book Nest in the 1990s, and, and even a picture of <laughs> books that weren't books, a picture called Stones That Look yes. Like Books. Yes. <laughs> yes. So this eagerness to play with the construction of images extended into the zoology collections and pictures such as yes. Samaya or Samia Moths which upon first glance is critters with eyes kind of looking at each other. And then as we spend some time with the image, we realize it's the end of moth wings that you've composed in a vaguely whimsical way, but also in a way very true to how these collections would have been held and archived in a zoological collection. How did you end up with the animals and, and finding ways to construct from them? Well, I went to the Natural History Museum after the after the termite book because I I thought, now look, come on, get a grip. You don't like this place, take a look. So I went back and I and I photographed the monkeys in the cases that I didn't like and so forth. I didn't got tired of working in the with all the children coming around with their cameras. It took me several years, but I finally got permission to go behind the scenes and to work in the zoology collection. And I decided that I really wanted to see what a rabbit would look like or what a, what a monkey back in the, would look like. And I was basically very put off by these things. One of the curators said, if you can't touch it, you can't photograph it. 
And I thought, that is, that's sort of mm. interesting. I want to take this picture because that is a strange skull. And so I then learned to handle them. And I learned to take, uh-huh. keep track of what I was doing. And I had, it take me a long time to get me permission, permission to get in there. But I was actually then asked to make a systematic <laughs> record of what I was photographing, at least just to have the record. And, and so I sort of learned that I had to do that. And then after I had a photographs of monkeys, and I was asked by uh, somebody in the publicity department if I'd like to photograph some bats for a bat exhibit they were having. And I thought, <laughs> well, wait, I've done monkeys. I don't know about bats. But it turned <laughs> out the bats were really very striking. And I'm sorry that more aren't reproduced in the catalog. But then I met Stephen Gould, and he became sort of the sensible scientific voice behind what I was doing. That is, he would look at these pictures. He had a great imagination, very good with visual materials. He just found in the things that I was photographing what one could say from a scientific point of view about the creatures themselves. And then Mm. he said it. And our first book was Illuminations, a bestiary, which was A to Z because he thought, well, this, you know, this is about right for this dummy. Let's just, just see what we can do with this. So I would take pictures. I would bring them to him. He would write a text. If he, if he liked the picture, he would say, that's a nice picture. Can't think of a thing to say. But he, he, he often thought of something that he could write of scientific interest that would be brief for the images that I was bringing. And the Samiamoth, to get back to that, I would take these photographs, though, and take them to him, and then he would tell me yes or no. You see what I mean? Mm. I wasn't really up to speed on what what might be interesting, but I did know that these were false eyes at the outer edge of the wings of the moth. And I thought that they looked great when they were sort of lined up, sort of the outer wings across from each other, and they made sort of a stepping stone sort of, of, of eyes all the way down. And he explained to me, how these are mimic, you know, mimicry, not eyes, and they're there in order to protect the butterfly because when it was attacked, when it is attacked by a predator, the predator goes for the eyes, and this looks like them, but, but are not. So mm. the worst that could happen is one of those sort of decorative spots on the wing could be torn or whatever, but the butterfly would survive. So what fascinates me about a lot of these images is that you are less interested in the animal and what the part of the animal you're photographing was for, as it were, and more interested in photographic composition and prioritizing your own pictorial needs. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's in pictures like this one of the moths, but it's also in pictures that aren't of animals, like window with broken glass from the 1980s. It's a window that does not reflect. Were you mindful, are you mindful of migrating ideas across subjects in that way, taking things that maybe you developed, taking concepts you developed while working with the animal collections and migrating them into other things? (laughs) I think I'm always mindful of background and foreground, which anybody who's ever taken a photograph is. I, but I've been through different playgrounds <laughs> and, yeah. and the windows, the windows come from a, you know, from a junkyard where everything was sort of buried or 
you know, broken. And because if you take the window picture of the broken glass, that was an assignment that I had when artists were being given the privilege of using the 20 by 24 camera at Polaroid. Uh -huh. You didn't have that much time. You were given a day maybe to work with a technician and you were told to, to photograph what you want, but you have to be able to give us one picture, you know, from what you've done from each picture, whatever. You have to pay them with pictures, not, the, mm. but the privilege was enormous because they would invite you, you'd have to go in, you'd have to be ready. And my idea is if I get to use this camera, I better damn well be ready. So for <laughs> that particular phase of work, I made things ahead of time and brought them in. So I would bring in monkeys and suitcases and, and then I'd bring in props if I had to, and I would make windows ahead of time of subjects mm. that could be photographed, rec recorded, let's say, with their camera. And there were several reasons for this. The, first of all, artificial light. Second of all, low depth of, no depth of field almost entirely with these 20 by 24s. Whereas I've been used to roaming around with the camera by then sort of a regular Nikon, by the way, and or view, even a view camera and getting fine depth of field by being able to close the lens down and do all sorts of fancy things like that. But but the 20 by 24 was a very uh, sort of not very much depth of field. And I had to build it for that assignment. And the other thing is I was mindful that this was a a sort of a company and a sort of a wasn't a group assignment, but I was being privileged that way. I was being invited to do this. And I was determined that I wasn't going to flunk it. So I had to build things and bring them in ahead of time. And that was a new thing. I had mm. to bring them so, build them so that they, they were relatively little depth of field in themselves. I found a lot of window frames and I started to fill them. And I feel them, that one happens to be broken glass, but I also have a fascination for the monkeys in the museum and the way they resemble gas, the men in gas masks from World War I. So I was also wow. combining World War I and monkeys in, in these frames, making sort of, I don't know, surreal political statements of one kind or another in order to go in and photograph it on that film. In around 1990, you began to make what what I guess I would call hyper real works. The word surreal means means most real, right? Very real from European collections. Works yeah. like Eye Made of Glass, Antler Bone, Arm oh. Holding Vascular Tissue. Yeah. These kind of very real, but also just spectacularly right. weird things. Yeah. How did you come to be in and have access to these European collections and why? And is, is that access related to kind of why the work changed a little bit right about then? I think that really what happened was that, that, that I kept working with Stephen, Stephen Gould, and we did the bestiary A to Z. And that was pretty simple because you pick up a, you know, an aardvark and you can photograph that. And then you go on to a bat and then Colugo, and you can find those in the museum at Harvard. But then interest in international collections started because I was wasn't running out of primates exactly at the museum at Harvard, but somebody, they, biologists kept walking through and research people and saying, boy, you like these, you should go to Leiden. <laughs> and then we had an offer. We, we did a, the best year. It was very, went over very well. And, and the same editor at Norton said, what about a book on collections? 
Mm. And the thing is that Stephen is, you know, was rooted to his, well, so he was the writer. We sort of put together, but he really did it, about the ways that he would like to write about collections. And I took this opportunity and the advance to go to Leiden and look at monkeys, okay? And once I got to the, to the museum in Leiden, which is fantastic, and many of the primates there, which had been put together, the taxidermy, by the, the keepers, or I don't know what, you know, the preparators in the museum mm-hmm. were pretty old. They, many of them came from Indonesia, but a lot of their modeling apparently was based on observing organ grinder monkeys in Leiden. You see, they kind of knew what a primate would look like when it was holding something, and they knew. So they were, they were more sort of horribly alive in a way than some of the ones that the, the museum at Harvard had been. But I mean, more sort of grotesque and and re- a gesture, full of gesture. And mm. that's the problem with, you know, dead animals. They just lie there unless you really are working to find a, a gestural or a expressive moment in them. And I worked very hard with the ones in Leiden. I went back about five times for different reasons and different books and different projects. I would sometimes work for up to an hour with one specimen. I don't know if you know about see the the one of the extinct bird dive bombing into a box of collection material but it was way of using the collections there more deliberately as a kind of a uh, an atmospheric still life the light in Leiden it was dutch light the windows are huge floor to ceiling i mean you just can't miss and I use natural light. I have to stay in one place. I can't take the animals for a walk around the city. You know, you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck. And what, what happened was sort of just the variety of what I was seeing. I mean, I'd say, you have a kiwi? And they opened a door, and there were 30 kiwis there. Good Lord. You know, I mean, it was, they don't just have a kiwi, unfortunately. And I know, I don't really think very hard about how rapacious they were. I just don't because I'm looking for something at that point that is, you know, that will will suit an image. And I I had to make do in all the museums we visited with the light that was available from the windows in Holland, more generous than other places, Uh, something that I'd seen in, in Leiden to begin with, which were at the hospital in Leiden, the hospital museum, which went back to the 1600s, specimens of human beings and in jars and but they're very baroque they were decorated with sleeves and i mean you know if there was an arm of a child holding an eye you know creepy horrible horrible but it's tiny tiny and beautifully prepared by an early preparator not albinus but somebody in the lineage of those early dutch experimenters with how you preserve human parts in order to educate doctors and to show people to make moralizing stories it's a complicated it's a complicated history and it belongs to people like Rausch r-u-y-s-c-h and i noticed something in in leiden and they were babies in jars various sorts of horrible looking things but they were used because in the time that they were made the the physician and the scientist was trying to say life is short life is sweet 
and light and light life has a sort of a has religious overtones so they were used sort of as symbolic and superstitious but also a sort of full of faith in one way or another and many many babies died and then somebody said most of these are in russia and so uh-huh. that led to the peter the great thing and peter the great why were they in russia because when peter the great was a young man he came to amsterdam to learn to be a shipbuilder because he was very uh, he was very interested in 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 being a builder and to making things i mean he even he made things on a lathe when he was older he made a chandelier for his wife i mean you know he's, he was sort of a, a handyman among other many other qualities and he came and worked in either amsterdam or leiden as a shipbuilder for a couple of years and then went back went back to russia and he met rausch and took some things back with him in the early 2000s you made a large three-dimensional work called uh, reconstruction of old worms museum it is a reconstruction of a dutch print danish well, Danish, yes, sorry. Danish museum, but um, the print may may be actually. Um, I think the print is Belgian. Um, <laughs> no, the, the man who did the print was called Wingendorp. Yeah. So, so the the reproduction of the space you made is like the photographs you'd made in the previous decade, a hyper real construction based on things that that once had life only of course the the old worms museum was built from two things that once had life the print (laughs) and the stuff in the museum why did you want to manifest the you know natural history cabinet type space in the print in actuality because inevitably as as we went through various projects i became interested in in the way older collectors had displayed things and my mother also had given me a book about the history of early collection of museum collections and it was a book that was published by oxford and it had many different essays by contemporary contemporary curators and scholars about different places and there was an, there was a sort of a, a reproduction of this print and i'd been in so many museums that i I just sort of looked at what was in it and I recognized this was an elk and that this was this and this is that. And I wondered why it was arranged that way. But I also had seen other engravings, reproductions of early cabinets or early museums. This is a really early one. It was, well, he died in 1655, which I think is the same date as the catalog of his, of his collection. He, he was a professor of science and, and in, in Aarhus for his students and he had built in his house a museum of things that he thought from the natural world they should see that they should come and see and hold and study and learn about and and he lived in a time when there was some confusion about whether or not for example um something that grew in the ocean and waved about was a vegetable, a plant or an animal, you know, a confusion between categories and then also sort of mythology, like what, what is a unicorn and narwhal, or is it, you know, is it a horse with a white horn? And he was very keen to have them look at what had been found from nature as best he could to see what was real. 
I mean, he was really early in this because he didn't belong to such a sort of a an heritage of superstition. He did. He did. There were many things that he did that, that showed that he believed in potions and so forth. But he just went, you know, what is tobacco? Where does it come from? What is a... So, it, no, it is not a unicorn. It is a narwhal. It is, you know, you can find it a few miles north of here and so forth. And then he also had Danish students who brought him, you know, students from north who brought him things. But he arranged them all in his house as if it were a museum. And I looked at this and realized that what this was, was it was a, it was a, a time capsule catalog of the things mm. that he actually was talking to them about. And I was interested in in the fact that you know all the horn things were on the left, all the big Atlant North Atlantic fishes were on the ceiling. That there was actually a lemur from Madagascar. That meant he right. he was in touch with people who who traveled, as many people in the 1600s yeah. were. So we had animals from all different places. And because of being in the Natural History Museum, I recognized some things, and I just thought here's this drawing. I want to see the real room. And then, of course, I had to get a lot of experts to help me work on it. It's fun to investigate the two images next to each other, and it's probably even more fun to do it in person. The last work I want to ask about is a picture you made in 2009-2010 of a bird wing on a piece of hematite. Hematite is a kind of an iron-based mineral And what's really fascinating about the picture is, and I can't explain how this works visually or pictorially, but the hematite seems to take on the texture of the bird wing and the bird wing seems to take on the hardness of the hematite. What about juxtaposing that bird wing and that mineral attracted you? Well, I was working on a project at the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia for Robert Peck, the book that resulted is called A Glorious Enterprise. It's the history of the Academy by two historians, Robert Peck and Patricia Tyson Stroud, and then photographs from their collections, you know, historical photographs, and then added once by me. I was really happy to work on that exhibit. And Bob let me go up on the roof of the Academy, which had a a series of sort of, of rough surfaces pebbles and tar and so forth. And he let us take up the curator's artifacts, which I could photograph up there because the light was absolutely beautiful. And that was a very dark week at the Academy inside. I always use daylight, but I always work inside. And this was a big treat. So I got to take them and place them on the roof. And I placed the wing into sort of a place that had been covered with tar and then sort of raked over because it looked as though it come from a very natural place to do that. It was back to sort of back to the earth. The fact that it looked like a wing had to do with the formation of the mineral, you know, underground because hematite can express itself in all kinds of ways, Mm. including great big shiny bubbles. Yeah. It's a really, it's a fun picture. Also the color in the, in the, you know, so-called bird wing extends into the hematite. I mean, it's it's one of those pictures that some of the much of the fun is the questions you can't answer while you're while you're looking at it. <laughs> Rosamond Purcell, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.